0: So First Peter 4, I want you to imagine that you wake up in the middle of the night, but you're not in bed. You're in some great marble hall, and light is shining brightly in every window. And there's a person standing right in front of you. You can hardly look at him. He's so bright, and your eyes haven't adjusted. It seems as if the light isn't merely shining on him from the windows, but shining from him. And he's holding a book out to you, and you take it. You don't realize this, but it's a dream, maybe a vision, and the person is an angel. So you take the book from him, and you open it, and you soon realize it's the story of your life. Everything's there, the good and the bad. It tells how your grandparents died in an auto accident when you were two. Uh, How at six you almost drowned in the neighbor's pool. How your dad abused alcohol how you didn't make the basketball team in 10th grade, how you were humiliated before your classmates when you were a senior, and then on and on right down today, to today. But it doesn't stop with today. It goes on telling the story of your life into the future. There are good things like your marriage. There are bad things like losing your job and, and the death of your best friend. You read about how your spouse is going to die 10 years before you do, and how you'll get cancer, and how you'll end your life alone in a nursing home. When you finish reading, you're shaking all over, and you feel like you're about to explode. And then the angel hands you a red pen and says, cross out anything you do not want to happen, either in your past or in your future. You open the book again, red pen in hand. You flip through the pages. What should you do? Should you cross out your grandparents' tragic accident? What about your dad's alcoholism? What about the humiliation in high school or the future things? Losing your job, your spouse, ending in a nursing home. You take the cap off the pen. What are you going to do? If you erased every bad thing that ever happened to you, every pain, loss, and rejection, who would you be? Would you be a better person? Would you be a monster? For what it's worth, I don't think God would offer you that terrible choice. He loves you too much for that. He knows that in this broken world, pain, pain is a necessary warning system. It's a severe mercy, one we don't want, but that we can't do without. Now, you might argue that you could do without it, and, and maybe you think you could do very well without it. I'm not going to argue with you. Maybe you could. I'll just say that you won't. You can argue hypothetically that you would be a beautifully spiritually mature person if you never had pain or suffering or trouble, but you'll never know because you will have pain and suffering and trouble. If you won't take my word for it, take Jesus's. He said, In this world, you will have trouble. Not you may, you will. This is just as much a a promise of Jesus as is surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. St. Peter's first letter was sent to churches that were in the midst of painful trials. There's nothing hypothetical about it. They were hurting, they were afraid. Peter felt their pain and he wanted to help. See, he understood suffering because he'd been through it and because he'd learned from Jesus how to face it. So he had something to say to these churches and something that he has to say to us that we can latch on to in the midst of our pain. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Since you and I don't get a red pen, we're not allowed to edit out the sad, bad, ugly parts of our lives. We better figure out what to do with them. Peter can help us. He begins by telling us to expect such times. Verse 12 is, is really hard to translate in a way that we hear what a first century person would have heard. The, the idea that the NIV and the other major translations get across is exactly the idea Peter wants us to understand. Expect trials, but it's not quite how he put it. The phrase that we have is, do not be surprised is missing any Greek word for surprise. Instead, the verb for offering hospitality to strangers is what's used. What Peter is saying, I think, is something like this. Don't treat fiery troubles like strangers you put up for a night or two and then have them out of your life forever. Fiery trials are not overnight guests. They are unwanted tenants with a lifelong lease. You better learn how to live with them. When I was in school, a song came out with this light, lilting melody that it quickly rose to the top of the chart. You couldn't turn on the radio without hearing it. If you were from another country, you didn't know English, you would assume that it was a happy song about young love. It was just, the melody was so sweet. The words, however, were anything but sweet. It was called Alone Again Naturally. One of the verses begins with the singer telling us how he was looking forward to the future, but, and I quote, "...as if to knock me down, reality came around without so much as a mere touch cut me into little pieces." leaving me to doubt, talk about God and his mercy. Oh, if he really does exist, why did he desert me? In my hour of need, I truly am indeed alone. Again. Naturally. That guy didn't understand. Suffering is not an occasional guest. It has a downstairs apartment. We need to accept the fact that hard times, injustice, unfairness, and pain are going to come into our lives. It's not that we're asking for it. In fact, we're asking to be spared it. That's what we pray. Every time we say, Lord, lead us not into temptation or into the trial. It's exactly the same word that Peter uses here. We're not asking for trouble, but we're not going to be surprised by it either. First, we face the fact that hard times and painful experiences are coming our way. We will not doubt God because of it. We've already made up our mind. We will not doubt God because of it. Next, we remember and we affirm that suffering is not senseless. God is using it for something good. Peter says, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When we suffer because we live in a sinful, damaged world, we share Christ's sufferings. He also suffered because of a sinful, damaged world. When we suffer because we refuse to compromise with evil, we share Christ's sufferings. When we will not do something that would dishonor God, we share Christ's sufferings. When we suffer for the sake of someone else, we share Christ's sufferings. And when we share Christ's sufferings, it's God's promise throughout the New Testament, not just here, but over and over and over again. When we share his sufferings, we will also share his glory. That's why we rejoice. With Christ in his sufferings, with Christ in his glory. Peter's already said that trials come so that our faith, this was chapter 1, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. How overwhelming that's going to be. St. Paul says that our light, momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He doesn't say that we're achieving an eternal glory in spite of our troubles. He says that our troubles are working, that's the word he uses, glory for us. Without trouble now, you couldn't have glory later. God is using your troubles in your life and in the lives of others. He will do it. That's something to be glad about. No trouble is ever wasted, including the trouble you're going through right now. You must remember that. You must rejoice in it. The Greek here is doubly emphatic. It's exulting, Rejoice. And you must stand on it. If suffering takes away your joy, then your joy is resting on the wrong foundation. Peter points out a particular kind of suffering in verse 14. I think because it's the one that we're most familiar with, the most common. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, the word that's translated insulted is broader than what we would think of. Other versions translate if you are reproached, that is if people make fun of you, if they gossip about you, if they overlook you if they try to color others' opinions of you in a negative way because you belong to Christ. They say you're too religious, you aren't any fun, you're, you're not sophisticated. They laugh at you because you're chaste. They laugh at you be, and, and treat you as if you're ignorant or simple-minded. Reproach happens in school. It happens in school all the time. It happens at work. It happens in the halls of Congress. And sometimes it happens in our own homes. And when it happens, Peter says, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You might not be able to see that, but God does. Peter learned this directly from Jesus. He said, when people insult you, Same word, when they reproach you, when they persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. It's not in spite of these things, but through these things that God is making us something we could never otherwise be. Can we see it right now in the midst of the pain? No. We don't believe because we see it. We believe because Jesus died for us. But, Peter says, make sure people aren't saying bad things about you because you're doing bad things. That's verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, a thief, or any other kind of criminal. Criminal is a a really broad word. It means evildoer, bad doer, or even a meddler. Just because a Christian suffers, it doesn't mean he's suffering because he's a Christian. We can suffer because we're God's servants or we can suffer because we're self-serving. Peter uses a technique in this verse that's common in ancient literature and works from the most serious murderer to the least serious meddler. The word meddler is a compound that's made of two roots. The first means others and the second means something like overseeing It's a word that's used of elders overseeing the church, actually. The idea is a person who sticks his or her nose into other people's business. The guy who's always on the lookout for inside information that he can pass along. If a person suffers for doing that, then he shouldn't rejoice but repent. Rather than glory in it, he should be ashamed of it. There are a lot of people who who think that being a Christian should safeguard them from suffering. That's not how Peter understood it. It's not how any of the New Testament writers understood it. Suffering can even come as a result of God's judgment. And when that's the case, you can expect it to start with Christians. This is verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, literally the house of God. And if it begins with us or from us, going out from us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Yeah, I've known some people, I can remember being at a woman's house, her children came to Sunday school, and her dad had died recently. She was angry. She wasn't angry because he died. She was angry because he didn't suffer more pain when he died. I'm serious, man. She was angry. She wanted God to punish him, make him pay, and he hadn't done it. She wanted the judgment of God. Well, he will get the judgment of God. But before we go calling down fire from heaven on people, we need to keep in mind that when the judgment begins, it begins with us, not out there somewhere. It starts from the house of God and goes out, not the other way around. Now look at verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Notice the phrase, suffer according to God's will. Not as in verse 17, suffer for being a meddler, but suffer according to God's will. Suffering is often contrary to God's will, but there are times when it's according to God's will. Some people lose their faith in God because of that. They, be, they lose their faith in God because of what they've suffered, or more often, in, from what I've seen, because of what someone else suffered. Frequently, someone they didn't even know but just read about. Those people always have a distorted worldview. The Bible never leads us to expect that we will escape suffering, that if God was good, we wouldn't suffer. Quite the opposite. And Christians in other parts of the world know this. A leader from Sri Lanka said this about European and American Christians. He said, one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection in the West on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there's inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. He is absolutely right. Do you know that in the year 2000, so that's not that long ago, right? 2000, there were 50 books published on happiness that whole year, the year of 2000. Just eight years later, 2008, 4,000 books published on happiness, a 7,000% increase. American Christians are determined to be happy. Americans are determined to be happy and give up the faith because of suffering. Asian Christians don't do that. They expect suffering. They realize that we're in a war zone. Churches in one Asian country ask converts a series of questions before they baptize them. You believe in Jesus? You want to be baptized? You're going to join him? Then they ask them these seven questions. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village to those who persecute you, forgive them, and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Now, we think, oh, yeah, sure. But that's because we have more than we absolutely need. Are, Are you willing to be beaten? rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? Nobody asked me those questions when I was baptized. Maybe they should have. Peter says that when we suffer, we ought to commit ourselves to God and continue to do good. The word translated commit in this verse means to place yourself before to place yourself before God. We do that intentionally. When we suffer, we bring our pain and our hurt and our fear before God, knowing that he he sees. One of his names in the Old Testament is the God who sees. He sees and will help He will use our suffering to rout evil. He'll use it to overcome our own sinful, selfish impulses. He'll use it to help others. Peter says, and continue continue doing good. What a temptation it is to stop doing good when we start suffering evil. As soon as we start suffering, we listen to the devil's cant. Why should you be kind when no one's kind to you? Why should you help? When was the last time someone did anything for you? Why do you say nice things about him when you know he talks about you behind your back? Peter wrote this. Continue to do good. I'm sure from a lifetime of experience, he knew that. No, knew that when we suffer, the first great temptation is to stop doing any good. Back in verse twelve, where the NIV translates, "Do not be surprised at the painful trial you're going through. You're suffering." The Greek is a little different, as I mentioned before. A more literal translation of that one phrase is not painful trial you are suffering, but the burning, it's the word for setting something ablaze, the blaze, the burning, and then a preposition that suggests movement that we could translate unto, the burning unto, and then the word for trial or temptation. In other words, the burning isn't the trial, but it leads to the trial. Well, what then is the trial? We have to get this. It is the trial of your faith. Whether or not you will, during this pain, continue to trust God, the temptation is to stop trusting Him and take charge of the situation yourself in an effort to stop the pain. If you're going through pain right now, physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, You need to know where it's heading. It's heading to a trial of your faith. The pain, as terrible as it is, is not the main issue. What you do with it, whether you continue to trust God, is. It is a trial you do not want to lose. Back to verse 19. Peter tells us to commit ourselves to God and continue doing good. A more literal translation, place yourself before the faithful creator by doing good. When you do good in spite of suffering evil, you place yourself right in God's line of vision. He sees, he's pleased, he will use you to bring good. In the world. All right, let me put this together. What do we learn about suffering here? First, we learn to expect it. It's not a stranger, it's not even an occasional guest, it is an unwanted tenant. Someday, God be praised, He will evict it. But until then, we mustn't be surprised when it shows up. Expect it. Second, remind yourself that God is using the suffering you're going through right now for your glory and for the world's good. He will not waste it. Cling to the truth that God will use even very bad things, evil things, and make them bring good results. Nothing can stop him from doing it. Nothing. Hold on to that. Third, Peter raises the possibility that we may be suffering as a result of our own doing. So if you're suffering, make sure it's not because you've done wrong. Well, how can you know? How do I know if it's because of me? Ask God. If you sincerely want an answer, and if your life is in a place where you can hear God speak, he will answer. He'll let you know fourth, when you're going through suffering, very intentionally present yourself to God by doing good. This is an act of faith, an act of trust, and it is phenomenally powerful in you and in others. Put yourself in his hands. Give him yourself and your suffering. He sees it. The Bible even teaches that he shares it and then continue doing good. Finally, keep in mind that pain as terrible as it is is not the trial, but it will lead to the trial. The trial is not a test of your pain threshold. It's a trial of your faith. It's one you mustn't lose. Too much depends on it. All right, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. I'm going to give you a minute to pray. Maybe God's spoken something to you that you know you need to talk to him about. Would you do that right now? Now join me in praying the prayer that our Lord left us. I'll put it on the screen so you can read it if you'd like. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation